Hi, I'm Leslie Vreinhook, and this is Suasion. Last time, I talked about how my parents had started listening to Rush Limbaugh in the 1990s, and how that led them to think the worst of me, their liberal daughter. For all the faith they'd once had in my intellect, it seemed to me that now they dismissed me as naive, foolish, as unreasonable and radical. And that may be true, but it's only the story from my side. This week, I spent some time trying to imagine it from their side. And here's what I think they might want you to know. In the early 90s, my marriage had broken up, and I was a poor single mother, struggling to put food on the table, working part-time, really at the end of my rope a lot of the time, living in a, a tiny rented house that quite literally had a dugout basement infested with rats. I was deeply, deeply disappointed in how my life was turning out, and I imagined, rightly or wrongly, that they must be too. And then I started keeping time uh, with a new boyfriend who was a radical left activist, a handsome, full-of-himself, pontificating jerk. And he was also a bully and a manipulator, and he made me and my daughters quite unhappy. And yet when my parents, particularly my father, voiced concerns about my love life, I got very angry and dismissed it as unfounded judgment, as none of his business. And it wasn't, of course, until my friends voiced the same concerns that I entangled myself from that very destructive relationship. And there were other big points of contention. I'd show up at my parents' house in Pittsburgh, where I'd grown up, every year for a few weeks. And Rush Limbaugh would be there, too, blathering away on the radio in the kitchen and in Dad's office. And it enraged me. The way he talked about feminazis and wacko environmentalists and all kinds of things that felt very personal and very insulting. But did I say, look, can we talk about this? Did I bring any kind of productive counterpoint or show up with facts and say, let's sit down and have a debate over the dinner table like we used to? No, no, I certainly did not. I got angry and I spewed. I treated my parents with as much disrespect and probably much, much, much more high dudgeon than they treated me. Even when Rush was laying out what were complicated, convoluted facts about American political goings-on, I was doubling down. I was still an American citizen then, but I'd been living in Canada for almost a decade. I really had no clue about most of those topics. And I think some of my Canadian friends might recognize themselves in that one. Still, I was blindly, angrily arguing against all of it, because it was pretty clear to me that he was twisting things, he was omitting things, he was certainly denigrating people in terrible ways. But I was also convinced that everything and anything that didn't fit the narrative in my head had to be wrong, had to be a lie. I had to be right. My side had to be right. And if that meant defending a 49-year-old big boss who was having a sexual relationship with a 22-year-old intern, well, so be it. 
Often, I just had absolutely no idea what I was talking about, and no sense that maybe my parents might have a better handle on some of the issues involved. I'm not, for one minute, giving my parents a pass here on some of the more extreme things they started to subscribe to. I'm certainly not giving Rush Limbaugh a pass. He has been an incredibly damaging force, and I watched him pull my parents in directions I don't ever think they would have gone without his influence. But he didn't achieve that with them, or with millions of others, because he's an idiot talking to idiots. Before I go on, I just want to make something clear. Last week, when I started recording the first episodes of Suasion, and after I had waded into Limbaugh's book, he announced that he has terminal cancer. I hadn't even known he was sick. I hadn't heard his voice since my mother's radio went silent last year, and I certainly wasn't intending to capitalize on that. To tell you the truth, I was quite sad to hear it. It was never my intention to talk about now. I wanted to talk about then. I wanted to talk about the 90s and about that fault line that grew into a chasm between me and my parents. But of course now didn't drop out of a clear blue sky. And while I was looking for what hooked my parents on the pages of Limbaugh's book, I found something else. Something I wasn't expecting. Well, not exactly. I found not just a road map from there to here, but the goddamn script. Global warming is denounced in this 1992 tome. And it also contains, of course, all the arguments against abortion, against women's right to reproductive health care, and in favor of fetal rights, all the same arguments we're still having. The book exalts the Founding Fathers, a phrase I don't remember ever actually hearing when I was growing up in America, but is now such a trope in every Republican speech. And Limbaugh calls social justice activists in the book looters and arsonists and thugs. And of course, he calls the mainstream liberal media lying, lying liars. Reading this book felt a little like watching a, a weird party of five television reboot. Everybody's a lot older, but we're all still talking about the same things. Ronald Reagan was the best president ever. And in 92, Limbaugh pulled a page from the Reagan playbook. And on the last page of Limbaugh's book, he invites people to tune into his show so you can, and I quote, learn about the people who are helping make America great again. 1992. There's even a mention of how absolutely necessary it is that the President of the United States be a natural-born American. How's that for laying the groundwork? Plus, in the book, scientists in general are portrayed as hapless morons. They're always mumbling and recklessly throwing out bogus findings that are proven wrong after further analysis. Which is, of course, exactly how the scientific process works, as we've seen over and over again with COVID-19. But those who've been listening to Limbaugh and all his like-minded offspring for 30 years have learned to distrust science so it's not surprising that they're not buying into COVID and what the experts have to say. In this book, I found the reason for every single shocking, disheartening, and insulting thing my parents said to me in my 30s. 
But as I said before, the book wasn't the thing. It was just a supplement. Radio was the thing. Nowadays, social media gets all the credit for the political polarization in our society. But long before the internet put a bullhorn in all our hands, and in the hands of every half-literate lunatic, there was radio. When Rush Limbaugh started his national radio show in 1988, he already had almost two decades on the airwaves behind him, and he knew what a powerful tool it could be. Decades before Rush, the U.S. government started broadcasting the Voice of America internationally, sending out its heart-grabbing spin to the world. Voice of America was so effective, the U.S. passed a law in 1948 to protect the American people from being subjected to its own propaganda. And you know, that law wasn't rescinded until 2013. See, there used to be all kinds of controls governing the airwaves in America, trying to keep it a little bit fair and a little bit honest. If you don't believe that radio is that powerful, that persuasive, you should read up on how radio was used in Rwanda, also in the 1990s, how the use of lies on government broadcasts and the distribution of free radios and then the emergence of a popular extremist station that started out name-calling and then started just plainly calling on people to kill, how that all culminated in the massacre of almost a million people. It's a way more complicated story than that, of course, but radio plays a big, big part in it. I'm not accusing Rush Limbaugh, then or now, of calling for anything like genocide, but I am suggesting that he's been a compelling force in what led America to this particularly dangerous moment in their history. Here's a confession. More than a few times, even after Rush got much, much more outrageous than he was in the 90s, I'd be sitting in my mother's living room and I found myself drawn in, hooked by the parts that were probably factual and seemed pretty reasonable, and then kind of led down the rabbit hole until I'd hear myself muttering, Hey, hey, they can't do that, damn Democrats. So I get it. I get how my parents were sucked into that vortex. When my daughters were eight, nine, ten years old, They'd spend a few weeks on their own every summer at my parents' house. They'd play badminton and go to museums and amusement parks and have a great time. And then they'd come back to me, and they'd be well-versed in divisive American politics. They had this joke when they were young, when something happened. Say a glass of milk got knocked over, and they'd yell, Damn Democrats! Nobody taught them that. But radio is insidious. It worms into your head like that song you can't stand, but you can't stop singing. In those weird rabbit hole moments, I'd catch myself. And then I'd go check a fact, Google it, go to a source document. We live in a time when doing that's easier and more possible than ever. And yet we so rarely do it. 30 years ago, that ability didn't exist. You couldn't fact check at your leisure, so you had to trust that the journalists who were doing the hard work of digging deep were telling you more or less the whole story. But remember, Rush Limbaugh isn't a journalist. He's never claimed to be. He's always claimed 
like Sean Hannity and everybody else of that ilk, to be an entertainer. And yet his listeners, tens of millions of them, choose to believe him absolutely whole cloth. In the 90s, Limbaugh showed what was effective and infectious and lucrative. And then it was like it was game on. Within a few years, there was Fox News, started, so their story goes, as an antidote to CNN. And in the same year that Fox News hit the airwaves, so did MSNBC. Twenty-odd years later, they both have incredibly partisan viewing audiences. According to Pew Research, 93% of American Fox viewers say they're Republican, and 95% of MSNBC viewers lean toward Democrats, and both sides think the other side eats puppies for breakfast. And both sides admit that they never look for other news. I know a lot of smart, decent Americans on both sides of that divide, and Canadians too, people I admire, who deliberately and scrupulously avoid hearing what's being said by the other side. I guess if you never have to understand what the other side believes or why, it's way easier to demonize them. Not knowing something does not make someone a bad person. But choosing to remain ignorant of facts that don't fit your worldview? That might. And so might refusing to even consider that those who see an issue differently or have a perspective that's based in different experience or those who vote differently are stupid or evil or both without even trying to have the conversation. That's not just dumb, that's dangerous. And that's exactly where my mother and I found ourselves by the end of the 1990s, entrenched, angry, and unable to find anything like common ground. And we might have stayed there, or worse, might have eventually chosen just to completely sever ties. And then in 2000, the luckiest thing happened. I got sick and almost died. And my mother came to look after me, came and stayed, and when I couldn't anymore, she looked after my kids. In the weeks that she cooked for me and fed me and sat by my bed at home and then for a long while in the hospital, we started to bridge the gap. It wasn't that her politics changed or that mine had. She still, for example, had disdain for Canada's socialized medicine, and those concerns were only fueled by how long it took for me to get the care I needed. But she could also see the value of it, how my care was never interrupted by bean counters, how I wasn't facing bankruptcy after a month in the hospital. And with the radio off, going through it together, we could talk about it, and we could hear each other. And maybe it was because she spent long enough in my life to appreciate how hard it was to be a working single mother and juggle everything. But somewhere along the way, she stopped seeing me as the floundering idiot she'd been told over and over I was and started respecting me again. And I stopped seeing her as the enemy and rediscovered what a deeply compassionate and caring person she was how she treated everyone she met with such warmth and respect and dignity. It wasn't a magic bullet, of course, 
There were plenty of arguments still to come in the years ahead as the world heated up. But we'd learned how to find common ground. And we'd learned that we might just agree on way more than we disagreed on. More about that next time.